This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co host, Dolores Alfieri. And today we're excited to interview literary and journalistic icon Gay Talese, who we will introduce more formally momentarily. But before we get into the interview, Dolores, how are you doing today? Very well, Anthony. Before we get started, I want to thank our listeners because we've been talking about our social media and asking our listeners to head over to iTunes if they feel inclined and leave reviews for us. It really helps the podcast to get noticed, which of course means that more Paisani get to learn about it. So I just want to say thank you because some of our listeners are doing this. So thank you, Nancy D. Thank you, Retro Librarian, for your terrific feedback. We read every one of them and it means a lot to us. So if you haven't already, please consider visiting iTunes to subscribe and to leave a review. And also, how about heading over to ItalianAmericanPodcast.com to sign up and be the first to learn when new episodes are published. All right. So with that, before we formally introduce Mr. Talese, I'd like to recognize our official sponsor for the Italian American Podcast, the National Italian American Foundation Dolores and I recently attended their gala. We got some wonderful interviews. It was a beautiful event. We got to speak to Mike Piazza, among others, and that'll be on an upcoming episode. Here's a brief message from the F. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NIAF, we see ourselves as leaders for the entire Italian American community. We work to protect our great heritage, promote the Italian language, Build stronger ties between Italy and the United States and serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, our efforts provide young Italian Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming leaders for tomorrow. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family today. This is Gabrielle Maletti, Director of Programs for the National Italian American Foundation, and here is your Italian American Community News. NEAF needs your support to pass legislation in Congress to give our community a long overdue apology for the internment and civil rights violations committed against Italian Americans during World War II. Join us and sign our Change.org petition. Learn more at NEAF.org. And congratulazioni to the National Organization of Italian American Women for celebrating their 35th anniversary. Noya honored Allison Camerata and Janine Mariani Sullivan during their 35th anniversary luncheon on April 16th in New York City. All right, Dolores, would you like to introduce our guest, please? I would, of course. 
This is the first part of a two-part interview. And something that was really interesting to me was that he was able to give us a firsthand perspective that really none of our other guests have been able to because he was around when it wasn't so cool to be Italian. So it's this totally new perspective firsthand that we, we haven't been able to hear. I mean, he really opened up about being Italian-American, his career, and his many, many opinions. <laughs> So, Gay Talese is a best-selling author who has written 11 books. He was a reporter for the New York Times from 1956 to 1965, and since then, he has written for The Times, Esquire, The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, and other national publications. His groundbreaking article, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, was named the best story Esquire ever published. And he was credited by Tom Wolfe with the creation of an inventive form of nonfiction writing called The New Journalism. His most recent book, A Writer's Life, was published in 2006 and reissued in trade paperback by the Random House Publishing Group in July 2007. A collection of his sports writing, The Silent Season of a Hero, was published by Walker and Company in September 2010. Anthony, why don't you send us into this terrific interview with a quote? Sure. So we selected the following quote from Mr. Talese, and I'll explain why in a moment. But the quote is as follows. People dress up for funerals. Why not dress up to celebrate that you're alive? And the reason we chose that is because whenever you see photos of Mr. Talese online or in articles, he's always like dressed in the nines. He's always looking amazing. So I thought that that was a <laughs> really good quote just to kind of capture that. So here it is, Mr. Gaitelis. Mr. Talese, welcome to the Italian American podcast. Well, I'm very happy to be here and I'm very practiced in talking about Italian Americans since I've been one for 84 years. I just <laughs> turned 84. But I think what, what makes somewhat special my communicating with you is that I'm old enough to have remembered when being Italian-American was a very uncomfortable situation for mm. people who were born perhaps just before World War II. I was born in 1932. And for those of us from that generation, that that era before and during World War II, it was a troubling time, and I'm in the company of many people that you know by name, the names of Cuomo and and De Niro and mm. Coppola and Scorsese and many people who are in show business or, or writers. Uh, Mario Puzo, the late Mario Puzo, the godfather. I knew him before he wrote The Godfather. Mm. All of us were young and impressionable as American-born people of Italian origin, of Italian parents or grandparents who came. And during World War II, made what, what, what made it so stressful is that many of us young people had either on our mother's side or our father's side of the family, people who in, remained in Italy and were fighting in the Italian army against the Americans in World War II. So we grew up at age 10, 11, in the 1940s, being aware that our ancestors were on the wrong side of the war. <clears throat> and in my case, I think I'm typical too. In my case, 
I was sometimes confused as to whose side I was on. Now, I was not born in Brooklyn or Chicago or Boston or big cities where there are a lot of Italians in Philadelphia. You know, I was born in a small town on the southern shore of New Jersey called Ocean City. There were mostly Protestants there. It was founded by Methodist ministers in the 1880s. And in 1932, I was born there. My father was a tailor, came from Italy, had a tailor shop on the main street. My mother of Italian origin was born in Brooklyn, worked for a big department store called Abraham and Strauss when she was out of high school for a few years. Then she married my father and she came down with him to reestablish a life as a married woman in Ocean City and she opened a dress shop. So these two people, the tailor with one shop and the, his wife, my mother, on the other had a dress shop. And they came in communication with the majority Americans, the Protestants, the white bread people, as opposed to us with the Italian loaf people. Mm. And, but the problem, if there was a problem, was the identity. And I had, as I said moments ago, somewhat confused identity. I was sort of a fractional American. I knew he was American because I was born there. But I wasn't born in an Italian ghetto. I wasn't born in Little Italy and Mulberry Street or, or San Francisco's Italian quarter. I was born as an isolated person on an island south of Atlantic City by about 10, 10, 10 miles. And re- listening to the radio and going to the movies where they had the March of Time, which was a news feature, and seeing the Italian soldiers being rounded up in prison of war camps or being shot at and be, and ultimately defeated by the Allies, the Americans, the Canadians, the British. And two of my father's brothers were POW, were in prison, in prison during the latter part of World War II. So what it meant for me was to see my own family in a divided sense. Not that my father and mother were anything in the public way espousing Italian victory. They were very mum about it, quiet, secretly quiet. And I was too, because we were American, but we just weren't sure we were accepted as American by anyone else. It must be like what it's like today to be a Muslim student, a, a, a boy or a girl of, of of Islam in Brooklyn or Chicago or Boston or or New York City, wherever. Uh, to feel you're not only an outsider, but regarded potentially as a terrorist or a troublesome person, and mainly not patriotic, not fully assimilated as an American. Well, we Italians, I think, we weren't, the, the issue of being Arab in those days were, was not an issue at all, but what was what was an issue was being Italian, because what was, what was Italy representing? Well, it represented fascism, Mussolini, it represented organized crime. And I grew up reading newspapers, mostly the sports page, but I'd see the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Ledger, or even the New York Times. My father read the New York Times because he was interested in the foreign news because he wanted to know what was going on in the Italian front in World War II. And I'd read about the mafia was in the headlines. So all we had as Italian-Americans, we had a kind of disgraced for a, a list of characters Lucky Luciano, Al Capone, um, Joe Bonanno, or or Mussolini himself. There were no positive representations within the United States, with one exception during the World War II period. That was Frank Sinatra. He was the only one I would listen 
in my hometown on the radio at night to the Lucky Strike hit parade. And Sinatra was one of the featured singers. And he was the exception because he was not only accepted by the larger American audience in show business, he was a big hit as a young guy, as a singer, and continued to grow to be more than a singer, to become an actor. And now more than that, to become an activist. He was the only Italian that had any stature with the larger American public. He wasn't an ethnic hero. He was more than that. He was at first an Italian kid from Hoboken. But then he little, little, he went from singing higher, higher levels of singing, and then as an actor in the movies, an actor who was not as most actors of Italian backer, they play gangsters, gangsters, Godfather, Goodfellas, or that sort of stuff. No, no, no. Sinatra was a was a, was a was a was a matinee idol. He got the girl. He danced with Gene Kelly. He he was a, an American. He played roles as a, a soldier in the American army and and from here to eternity, as you know. Mm-hmm. So he was a breakthrough guy. He was the guy that people like me felt little by little. Maybe I am accepted or could be accepted if I behave myself as an American. If I don't do anything stupid, if I don't, if I don't violate regulations, and, and if I advance myself to a certain amount of prominence, maybe I too, like Sinatra, can be a fully born and realized American. And that's one of the big mes- messages, I think, that I, being on your show, Dolores, today, I think I'm a little because of my age. As I said I'm 84, and I remember the World War II period, and mm-hmm. so did Mario Cuomo, mm-hmm. and so did Francis Coppola, and so did did you know Perry Cuomo and and Tony, the great Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett's people come from Calabria. That's where my people come. My father, and mother's people come from the toe of the boot, Calabria. Mm-hmm. And for us today. Like Tony Bennett is even older than I am and is functioning magnificently as a performer, as you mm-hmm. know. And Lady Gaga, her people from Italy as well. So the Italians, Italian-Americans, I mean, are really fully out there in public, uh, losing our great uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, but we had two, had two justices. Now we have one. But to think that from the lawless people that we were portrayed during World War II as being gangsters or potential hoodlums, you know, anti-social characters at best, criminal at worst. Now we rest in the 21st, early part of the 21st century with two Italians who rose to the highest court in, in the land, the Supreme Court. So there's so much to be proud of, but there's also so much to be aware of and to remember. And if there is a problem today, as I see it, it's that the younger Italian-Americans don't even know what it is like to be an Italian-American, right. which is good in one way because they're American. We all wanted that, but we all didn't have it mm. within reach in comfort. It wasn't within reach for people of my age group. And as we got older, we see generations from ours. Now it's like three generations away from what I was describing as a boy. The Italian-American today doesn't remember, as I do, people speaking broken English. I come from a home a little bit on my father's side. My mother was born in, in, in the United States, as I said, but my father was not. And so English was the second language. And while he spoke it very eloquently, he was very careful wanting to speak only only English, mm-hmm. during, especially during the working hours. But when the store was closed at night... He and my mother, who led, who taught, who had been taught to speak Italian from a teacher when she was growing up in Brooklyn, because her parents didn't speak English at all, 
this kind of character, this kind of family of which I'm a part, is 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 not 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 in evidence these days because the Italians have settled here three four generations. They started to come in the 1890s and interrupted by World War One, and then in the 1920s again. My father came to America in 1921, and so uh, and I was born in 1932 and was 10 years old in 42 when the war with Italy was at its height. And so it's a real history lesson that I think I represent because of my age and circumstances. And so this program that you you have, the, uh, the program you're serving as as the host this morning, um, is a program that that probably doesn't frequently refer to what it was like to be an Italian American uh, more than a half a century ago. But it is such a large reason of why we are doing the show because, you know, both Anthony and I want people of our generation to understand that, that, you know, it's it's terrific now to be Italian, right? It's terrific to be Italian-American, but it really wasn't always the case. No, it wasn't the case. In fact, even even in the recent, more recent past, let's take the 1980s, it was, it was long removed from my boyhood, as you know, but then we had Mario Cuomo was a potential Democratic candidate for president. And, you know, he'd already been distinguished as the governor of New York and had lived a, just an, a perfect life in terms of the right temperament, the right education, the right appearance, the right and the sense of righteousness because he was such an honorable and lawful and lofty man. Yet when it came against comparing his chances of winning against Bill Clinton, um, Clinton, you know, a, a born, born of poverty in Arkansas, um, had very superior education. But still, Cuomo was worried, and I know this because I got to know the governor, the former governor, the late Mario Cuomo, a little bit. Uh, I worked for the New York Times, and for 10 years I'd meet many people of, of high rank, such as the late... Governor Cuomo, but he couldn't run. He mm. could, he could have run, but he was wise not to because, and even in those days, uh, meaning the 80s and 90s and 1970s, to be an Italian was still tarred somewhat by the shadow of mafia connections. If you were really successful, you might be, oh, he had some connections in organized crime and he muscled his way to the top, or he mm-hmm. has protection. And that's Cuomo. He he didn't feel as as a, as an American, elevated as he was and celebrated as he was politically, that he could compete with with such a person as the native-born, if 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 somewhat, uh, um, somewhat tarnished figure of Bill Clinton because of his escapades with women that got to be well known even before the Monica Lewinsky situation. So, but still, Cuomo would not, he felt himself, make it in a larger America as an American elected president. So he stayed, he stayed away mm. because that mafia cloud of the mafia, he had no more connection to the mafia than, than you know, Chief Justice Roberts in the Supreme Court. Right. But still, 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 uh, he felt that he was not long removed 
from the specter of godfather figures, you know. Mm, right, and he chose not to run for the presidency because right. of that. Right, yes. And that and as you said, that wasn't very long ago, really. I mean, in terms of history. No, it isn't. I was I was I was already at that time I was long retired from daily journalism. Right. I, was, I worked for the New York Times. And even I worked for the New York Times as a reporter from nineteen fifty six to nineteen sixty five. But you know, there weren't even many reporters who were Italian. There I mean we had I was one of the few who rose in journalism this is this is not this is not rocket science but this is journalism the lowest form of writing i guess you might call it not that it's not valuable in, in its intent but there weren't many italians americans mm. who were reporters when i was on the paper and when i go on assignment and compete with reporters from the herald tribune or the new york news or the new york post or or, or out of town travels to to Philadelphia or Florida, you know, sometimes big stories, you meet competitive journalists or, or television commentators or radio reporters. Very few Italians, no couple, but very few. In fact, and most of the writers, the best known of Italian-American writers who were maybe lucky enough to have a bestseller, were also people dealing with organized crime. I mean, Mario Puzo, right. I mentioned to you before, had written, I knew him when he was very young. I mean, we're about the same age or a little younger, but I knew him when he wrote a book called A Fortunate Pilgrim. Right. It was a beautiful book, but didn't sell any copies because the Italian-Americans don't read that much. I mean, it sounds horrible, your program. Oh, what do you mean we don't read that much? Blah, blah, blah. Well, it's true. They don't. <laughs> they don't. They don't read that much. They are not people of the book. They're people of song. They're singers. They're, they're actors. They're demonstrative people, they, they're colorful people, they're articulate in their language when they're singing a song, but when they're sitting alone as a scrivener, a solitary figure writing a book or writing an article, even writing a newspaper article, there are very few of them, considering uh, probably how many Italian-Americans, 15 million, who knows exactly, a high percentage of the American population are Italian or, or, or somewhat Italian-related, either to their mother or their father's side. And, and and yet you don't see their bylines on the head of the New York Times or on the New Yorker magazine or or NBC. You might find one or two, you know, Richard Valeriani comes to mind, but but you don't see a, a, an anchor person. Um, there might have been one, but I was never aware of one. My ignorance might be exposed by one of your listeners. Oh, there was this and that. I didn't. I just wasn't aware. But I'm really saying that that when you have people in media, you have people to protect your image. Mm. For example, uh, American people of Jewish uh, heritage, you know, you can't say anything that might smack of anti-Semitism without being nailed, nailed for it. I mean, you really because there's so many uh, people in the media who are Jewish, and their newspapers and magazines that own or television or, or movie or studio heads. You know what I mean? Yes. But the the Italians have not been that. Successful in in the world of communications, and that's very really important because that really becomes in a, in, a, in a form. It's a form of propaganda, of course. All journalism is a form of propaganda. It's a form of expressing yourself with a certain slanted point of view. Because there's, there's no such thing as objective journalism. It's it's a folly. Everybody who writes for a newspaper, who owns a newspaper, or who reads a newspaper, has a particular point of view. 
they will read this paper and not that paper because that paper has a, has a is to the right or this paper is to the left or this people you know there's all that prejudicial stuff within the souls and minds of people even if they don't acknowledge it right but the italians are not represented well in in the print media but they are represented well in show business I think you mentioned you mentioned solitary too, and I also think you know as a writer myself and growing up in an immigrant household, you know closed doors, privacy. It's not really the Italian American way. That's more as you really. It's a, Dolores, that is a key point you just made because it goes even further. The the term in the mafia, you know, is omerta, the vow of silence. Mm. Well, even people who have no connection in spirit or in actuality with organized crime are still influenced by that great tradition, that greatest Southern Italian tradition of silence. Because if you are going to be a writer, you expose your privacy, you expose your, your family, you, you, you open your private door up to open for, for public scrutiny. And that's very much against the character of the Italians to rat on anybody. And you don't rat on your mother and your father by writing a novel <laughs> right. like, like, you know, Mommy Dearest. You can't imagine an Italian writing Mommy Dearest. I mean, that was... Right. And so that's our nature. you know. Yes. And also what's also relevant is we're village people. If you ever traveled in Southern Italy, and I've done extensive travel, I've lived there, um, uh, where, where people who live in that small section of the peninsula of Italy, south of Naples, which is very mountainous all the way down to the tip of Italy, the Calabria region I told you is where I come from, my people come from. But it's mountainous. And in the days when our forebearers were living, they couldn't go very easily from village to village, those steep mountains and cliffs. So they tended to stay in their little village. They developed a village mentality. They developed a dialect. In fact, in those days, they speak of, you know, the 1890s when America started to receive immigrants in these boats from Italy. These boat people, rickety people, such as you read about now, who are trying to escape North Africa and they're trying to get into Sicily and their boat boat sinks, their barge sinks, and all these deaths you read about. Well, in those days, in steerage came the bulk of the Italian. Uh, immigration to America, and, and 80-90% of it was from the south, meaning from Naples south all the way down into Sicily. And those people were from villages. They were very often mountain people. And the only way of getting from one part of a mountain to another part was, was a mule. You know, you could, no, because very slow-moving mules carried people here and there, and they didn't go very far. So the people that were coming to America were insular people, very I'm not saying narrow-minded, but I am saying narrow-minded in a way they, because they had no choice but to be narrowly minded because they didn't have any space in their background. They didn't travel very much. They were very, they were very mysterious in their ways. They were also very superstitious. The Catholic Church of the South, which is the Catholic Church of the Catholic Bourbon Dynasty, centered in Palermo in, this, in, in, in Sicily and with the headquarters in Southern Italy and Naples, of course, the capital of, of what used to be known as the capital of the, 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 the land of the two Sicilies. And, and we were very much under church rule, which, which was very severe, very doctrinaire, and also could not read very, very, very readily because the teaching of the church was censorship. You had to believe in the narrow defines of the Catholic Church as it was expressive 
in the in the late 1800s, and the people who really settled southern Italy from the 1500s were, were Spanish Bourbons. They were they were from the Bourbon dynasty that in France produced Louis the Fourteenth, etc., etc. And 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 in Italy, the, the Bourbon dynasty ruled from the from the capital of Naples, as I mentioned, and brought the kind of Catholicism that was characterized by Torquemada. The severity of, of the church was, you know, blasphemous behavior, probably be hung from a tree. And so the Italians of my people, my origin, and Francis Coppola, and Scorsese, all these people that are well-known today and winning Academy Awards, etc., are, are people who are four or five generations removed from a, from being mountain people, village people, careful people, mysterious people, mm. people who believed in, in miracles, and people who believed in mysticism, and people who were utterly superstitious in so many ways, because they were isolated. They were away from the large uh, thought process of, of big big life, big life, big countries, Catholic, in the universal sense of being integrated with all different kinds of people. The Italians are all the same kind of people. And out of this came no writers to, to rank uh, with the most of, of the other people in, in this country who were more liberal-minded, liberal like, like the Jewish people, very liberal. The Italians are very conservative. Mm -hmm. today, today, in the Republican Party, you have many, most of the Italians are, are, in the, are today conservative. An exception, of course, is Mario Cuomo and his distinguished son, Andrew Cuomo, who's governor of New York as I speak to you now. But most of the Italians were, are, are wanting little government because they never had government that they could trust in Italy. Yeah. So all these little things that seem like they're insignificant are very significant and, and very enduring, these, these qualities. You're absolutely right. It's it's not out of nowhere. It's this long pattern that still remains in modern day Italian Americans. That's right. That concludes part one of our two-part interview with Gay Talese. We'll be airing part two in our next episode where Talese will continue to talk about the forces that have shaped Italian Americans as well as journalism and his own work. For now, on to the next segment. All right, welcome to the Italian American Stories segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our relatives. But before we jump in, let me recognize our sponsor for this segment, Select Italy. Select Italy is the ultimate source for travel to Italy and offers a wide array of superior Italian travel products and services, including customized itineraries, fascinating tours, romantic getaways, unique and fun culinary classes, yacht charters, transportation, hotel reservations, villa bookings, tickets for museums and musical events, and more. And today, actually, I'm going to be speaking with Umberto Mucci, who runs the website WeTheItalians.com. I'm going to talk a little bit about why he started this website, and he has a really nice story around it. But first of all, Umberto, welcome to the Italian-American podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony, and uh, ciao to you and to everybody who is listening. So, Umberto, you started the website WeTheItalians, which is has uh, a lot of resources for Italian-Americans, a lot of amazing interviews on all things Italian-American, quite frankly. But 
you know, when I started reading about it, I saw, man, this is a great resource. And then I started, I got to know you, got to meet you. And, you know, there is, you know, kind of the thought was, well, you know, Umberto is Italian. He's lives in Rome. He's from Rome. Um, yet he's got this great resource for Italian Americans. So I, I learned the story from him that I wanted him to share and what made him passionate about, you know, Italian Americans and doing this research and, and doing all this work. And I hope that he would share it here with us today. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. So, um, you know, I live in Rome. I was born and raised in Rome. And um, as the um, payoff of Weedy Thailand says, uh, my heart is divided in two uh, for two countries, for really in the United States. Uh, so two flags, one heart. This is why uh, when I was a child, uh, my father used to tell me stories about the Second World War. Um, he escaped from the fascists. Uh, he didn't want to fight for the fascists. And, um, and they, they, con they, they, they wanted to, to apprehend him, to kill him. And he was saved by the Fifth Army. So you can imagine a child, uh, four or five years old, uh, sitting on the lap of his hero, who was his father. And my father was f 47 years old when I was born, so there was a real distance between he and me from an uh, from a, 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 um, age point of view. And so he was my hero. He was very charismatic. And I was listening to the stories, and he was telling me that uh, the Americans uh, freed him, cured him, saved him, armed him, dressed him, fed him. He didn't even know their language, but the Italian Americans were with them. And in particular, three guys, three Italian Americans were friends with my father and stayed friends with my father. And now they're in heaven uh, celebrating their friendship. And their name was Sal, uh, Gastaldo and Tizo. And, uh, and so, you know, for me, America was the country that, that saved my father, my country. And then they even gave him a medal, which I have in my house right now where I live. Uh, so, you know, basically, I uh, started to love the Americans, uh, to respect the country. Uh, my father and my mother grew me up. Uh, respecting what the United States have done for my country, for Italy. And so, you know, basically I, I, I grew up uh, thinking about the Americans as my liberators, the liberators of my country. And, uh, you know, I'm happy that you asked this question to me because I, I don't know if I can say it, but we are recording this podcast on April 25. And yep. today, Italy celebrates the liberation of the country. And, um, you, know, you know, almost every year on this very day, I go to the Sicily Rome American Cemetery close to Rome, uh, where 7,891 American soldiers are buried. M many of them are retired Americans. And I pay my respect to those guys because they gave life to free my country. And uh, not always everybody understand that we have to be thankful to them. Of course, there were a lot of Italians who uh, freed the country and, and uh, uh, of course, they rebelled uh, against fascism. That's right. But uh, I always want to thank the Americans and the Italian Americans who were there because they gave their life to free our country. And so I'll never forget it. So... This That's is great. particularly interesting for me today, every day, today in particular. Yeah, that's a great touching story. 
And so, so tell us about this. So your, your father obviously was saved by Americans and that's kind of where your affinity for Americans came from. And then you created this resource, We the Italians, and tell us kind of the purpose and the mission behind We the Italians. Yeah, I, I started this because uh, I had a lot, of, a lot of contacts in the United States. I did a lot of massive research on uh, how the Italian-Americans were uh, communicating online. And I understood that there was uh, a niche, a very interesting and, and, and rich niche of contents and passion uh, uh, online, which was not uh, aggregated by any, any website. And uh, so I started to do that from here. You know, technology and the web allows you to do that even if there's an ocean between me and the market pool, uh, the, the Italian American community, of course. And uh, I suddenly realized that there were a lot of uh, interesting people and associations. So I started to do interviews. Basically, the uh, interviews, uh, which are now 140 already done, uh, are... Um, Interesting because I address topics. I not only uh, am interested in the person who I, who I interview, and then I started to understand that uh, there was uh, room for aggregating news. So basically what we do is we listen to everything uh, said on the web by social media, by Google Alerts, by newsletters, uh, feed RSS, whatever it is in the Italian American community. So we aggregate all of these contents and we publish 25 news every day about what's happening in the Italian American community or in the community of the Italians uh, who were born here and recently went to the United States. Then we have a magazine, which is, uh, uh, we, we, we already published 1,000 articles about Italy. And then we have a sparkling activity on the social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We are there and we are aggregating people and sharing contents. And finally, there's the book, which is the collection of the most interesting and most important 100 interviews I've done uh, yeah. since 2015. And Umberto is, has toured around the U.S. with his book already. Dolores and I had the opportunity to meet with him at the Italian American Museum back in March down in, in Little Italy in New York City, and it was wonderful. He had some guests that were featured in the book, and he told his story, which is what led us to invite him on to the episode here today. Umberto, just as, as we wrap this up, I guess one question that I have for you is, you know, obviously you're in Italy, you're in Rome, you come to the U.S., you've got a lot of things that you do. What is the general feeling, and I know you can't answer this for all Italians, but just from what you've seen in Italy, what do Italians think about Italian Americans or do they, you know, are they, are they interested in learning about any of their descendants that have come to America? Like what, what is the, what is the general feeling about that? Well, actually, to be honest, uh, I can tell you that uh, um, Italians are not very interested in the Italian American community, not because they think that uh, uh, you Italian Americans are worthless, not at all. There is, this is, there is not a negative feeling. No negative feeling. It's just that we Italians who live here in right. Italy are probably too concentrated to, uh, on, on our belly right now. And we have a lot of problems. Uh, what we don't understand here is that you're a resource. Uh, you're not a burden. You want to help. You're passionate. We got to learn from you. You got a lot of passion about Italy. You got a lot, a lot of love about Italy. And this is something that we need here, too. In fact, the mission uh, of We Italians in Italy is to represent the Italian American community and 
teach to the Italians about what you do, your accomplishments, your passions, because we got to learn from you. We need more America. And what I, when I say we need more America, I say that we need more you, you the Italian Americans. To answer your question uh, completely, we are thinking about doing something in 2017. Uh, probably the, it, it'll be something like a Columbus Day in Italy. I don't know if it'll be a Columbus Day or something different. We won't have a parade exactly because we won't have people waving their flags uh, uh, during a parade because we're not that kind of, of people here in Italy. I'm, I'm sorry about that, uh, who wave their flags for a parade um, celebrating one of the most important Italians uh, in history, uh, which is Columbus. But we will definitely do something which will be a celebration of the Italian-American community and a description of, of how and where and why we Italians should learn a lot about the Italian-American community. We are the Italians who care about the Italian-Americans, who know the Italian-Americans, who want to represent them and thank them and learn from them. Great, great. Once again, Umberto Mucci, WeTheItalians.com, and the new book is We the Italians, Two Flags, One Heart, 100 Interviews. As we close out the show here, let me once again recognize our sponsor for this segment of the show, Select Italy. Everything you need for optimum travel to Italy is possible with Select Italy. Their helpful travel planners in Chicago, New York, and Shanghai are always ready to give the best advice on when and where to visit, while the Florence support staff is there to help should you need anything while you are in Italy. The company recently expanded its offerings and services to the Balkans with the launch of Select Croatia. Visit selectitaly.com and selectcroatia.com. All right, Dolores, tell our listeners where they can catch up with us online. Oh, definitely. So in addition to visiting italianamericanpodcast.com and signing up to be the first to hear when our new episodes are published, come find us over on Instagram. We are at Italian American. At Twitter, we're at Ital American, I T A L American, and we're on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Ciao, amici.